Hi, this is Lisa, and you are listening to I Love That Movie. This podcast is for movie lovers. It's not an unbiased opinion. It's not a straightforward review. It's just a couple people talking about a movie that they love. The format is each week I have a guest, and that guest and I discuss a movie that they love, something they're obsessed with, something they connect with. We'll talk about the plot, the director, and the actors, but we'll also talk about the personal connection my guest has with that movie. So if that sounds like something you want to listen to, keep listening. This is Lisa, and if you want to catch up with me on Twitter, you can find me at ILTM Podcast. We've also got an Instagram, I Love That Movie Podcast, and we are on Patreon. Uh, that's at www.patreon.com slash I Love That Movie. This show is always free, but if you want to support the show, you can, and you will receive a bonus episode weekly of all the things that I'm keeping up on and watching. So we have a lot of fun in there. And I want to take a moment to thank my top patrons, and they are Chris Belga, Jeff Widman, and Michael Cross. Thank you guys so much. Uh, we also have a Teespring, if you want any I Love That Movie swag, a Discord, and a Facebook group, and a website. Um, and that's all my plugs for today. Guys, as always, if you enjoy this episode, please rate the show and subscribe. It helps new listeners find us. Um, I've got a new guest with me here today. I have Ben Modell, a silent film accompanist and historian. Say hi, Ben. Hello. And, and I even have that new guest smell. <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> Um, and Ben, since people may not have heard you on, you know, certainly on this podcast, I'm sure that they have heard of you, but how, can you go ahead and introduce yourself a little bit? Sure. Uh, what I do, well, until around March 7th, <laughs> what I do <laughs> for my, for my uh, real job is I accompany silent films on piano and theater organ, uh, not at the same time, one, one or the other. Uh, but I also teach i teach a course on silent film at wesleyan university that's the wesleyan that's in connecticut uh i i also uh run a dvd label called undercrank productions where i produce and distribute dvds of rare and or lost silent films that are undiscovered gems of the silent mm. film era and i have a podcast like everybody else and uh <laughs> uh i'm sure there's a few other things but and i and i think of myself also as, as a programmer and a silent film event uh a producer or, or creator as well well and ben you've been hosting these awesome silent comedy watch parties can you talk a little bit about that i just watched one yesterday and really enjoyed it oh yeah thanks and were you able to watch it live Yesterday. I was. Oh, great. I was. Yeah. Um, I tuned in like a couple minutes late, um, but I did watch it live. I think oh, out of all the shorts that you showed, my favorite, um, I don't remember the name of it, but it was the one with the um, the machine that turns an egg into something, yeah. into an egg that doesn't break. Yeah, it's it's a film <laughs> called Egg Don, starring Charlie okay. Bowers. Okay. That was a lot of people's <laughs> favorites. Um, <laughs> nobody knows who Charlie Bowers is. Uh, for the most part, a lot of the classic film or silent film fans, we've all been rediscovering his work in the last several years. But mm. a silent comedy watch party is a weekly live streamed silent movie show with live musical accompaniment that I conceived of and 
put together very quickly uh, and during the second week of March when uh, we saw the shutdown was coming, like mm-hmm. uh, a big storm coming over the, the horizon. And I, I watched uh, as every gig I had fell like dominoes. And mm-hmm. I I'd had this idea for years, a few years anyway, especially once my YouTube channel was uh, approved for live streaming, of trying to do a silent movie show as a live stream uh, and had shied away from the concept because I wanted to promote people showing up at theaters. And suddenly sure. yeah. there, there, you know, actually when I did a quote unquote pilot uh, where we just ran two short films, I just, I just wanted to see if it works. I don't know. I'm a big fan of, of t- trial balloon uh, <laughs> projects uh, with, with this and with my DVD label and some other things. And uh, even in the, and when I did the pilot, uh, I said to whoever was watching, well, you know, I have a show this Tuesday and I have something that's coming Saturday. And within by, you know, within 24 hours, both of those were over. And so yeah. basically what we do is I'm in my living room. Uh, my wife is operating my iPhone, which is camera one. And uh, my friend Steve Mass, who's another silent comedy film historian, he's in his apartment across town. And we uh, we were uh, piping him in via FaceTime over my wife's iPhone, which we would hold on a stand <laughs> in front of the other camera. Um, and now we're using a, a software that allows us to just pipe him in digitally. Mm-hmm. And basically, we introduce and present three comedy shorts, silent comedy film shorts, and I accompany them live on on piano. And th- that's and that's basically what what the show is, and what's been really uh, moving is the response we've gotten from people watching all over the planet, uh, and how much it's meant to them to to. It's not. It's become more than getting to see old movies. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's there's something almost transportive about watching silent film, and something restorative about watching silent film comedy. Uh, uh, and yeah. we can talk about the language of silent film and why that works and why these hundred year old films still hold up. But uh, it really does uh, in 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 the way that I think video gaming does or any kind of gaming does it takes you up out of your existence and gives you a little respite and relief from what's going on. But even after the first show we did, we we were getting emails or comments online from Mm -hmm. people saying how much it meant to them uh, at the end of this week, you know, uh, to to just laugh. I totally agree. And there's something about, you know, and I'm sure we'll get into this as well with the film that we're going to talk about today, but there's something about watching silent film and specifically uh, live accompaniment um, that really does alter how you view that film. Um, you know, I think sometimes a lot of newer, uh, you know, film lovers have a harder time with older movies and specifically, I think, silent ones in the context of having somebody live playing the piano and then also giving us that uh, context of what it was like during that time and explaining the history and who these people are. I just have really enjoyed watching that. And I think that it could be sort of a, a window for people that are new to the silent film world to kind of 
understand what it's all about. Oh yeah, I mean that's we've I've been I've heard from people who have discovered silent film because their friends send them the link to the show and they wound up watching it and mm-hmm. and the difficulty like you're mentioning is really the the word silent. It's extremely <laughs> off-putting. It's uh unfortunately we're probably one of the worst names for a type of f- film of any type of film because it just right out of the gate it sounds like you're going to have a bad time uh <laughs> you think oh i have to be quiet uh but it's it's just it just means that there were no microphones when they made these movies exactly yeah that's pretty much <laughs> it just refers to the way they were shot uh but uh it's it's uh it's because it's oddly enough, it's because of all the things that are missing uh, that makes them universal, makes them hold up. And it's because you're using your right brain uh, to fill in everything that that is what glues you up and into the, that 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 crazy world. And, and it's what makes it a universal language. I completely agree. Yeah. So now my guest always picks the movie. So what movie did you choose for us to talk about today? Uh, I chose Charlie Chaplin's Modern Times from 1936. Wonderful. I'm so glad you chose this. It feels, you know, I'm sure we'll talk about it, but very relevant (laughs) right now. Um, And was just such a treat to watch. I rented it on iTunes, um, the Criterion Collection. So it was like beautiful to look at. I mean, crystal clear. And was just such a treat. So I'm admitting to you, this is my first time to watch it all the way through. So wow, thank you for I, using it. <laughs> oh, you're you're welcome. And a lot of a lot of times, uh, things that I do in terms of picking films, uh, whether it's for this or for a show, uh, I have an, an agenda uh, to to share or introduce films. So I thought, oh, this this might be an opportunity if you haven't seen the film for you to discover it. And have you, have you seen a lot of Chaplin's other films? I have seen, um, you know, a lot of clips over the years. I know I've seen a couple of his films definitely when I was in college and had a film class. Um, but it's not something to where I have, you know, a lot of knowledge about. Um, and so I hadn't seen this particular film, but I'm familiar with Charlie Chaplin. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah no, I just, I just, I just, I just ask because, uh, there, there are people I know who know all of his films shot by shot, and there's some people who are just discovering him. And it, it, this, this is a, it's his last silent film, even though it's 1936 and sounded pretty much taken over in 1929. And he actually continued making silent films, uh, in making City Lights in 31 and Modern Times in 36. Can you talk a little bit about when you first saw this film and, you know, what that experience was like? Yeah, I was nine. And I was, I mean, so the, which, which sort of dovetails on the question uh, I get asked a lot is how did you discover, how do you get into this? Uh, Which is kind of a loaded question anyway, but uh, basically, um, in you know, I, I I'm I was born in the early '60s, and really until cable, uh, when when uh, the the daytime programming uh, changed, especially for for kids, uh, you didn't have a hard time finding silent movies on on television in the '60s and '70s, and even in the 1950s. Uh, but so when I was growing up, uh, I, I am told by my folks that I discovered Charlie Chaplin on TV when I was a toddler because they were showing the films in the afternoon, either as kids programming or it was run on public television. And so I was 
you know, it's one of these things where you, where as a kid, you just, you don't know why, but you're just obsessed with something. And with some kids, it, they go through a phase when they're two. And then it goes away after a couple of years. Uh, it just, it, it stayed for my entire life. And I just was uh, really crazy about silent movies, but especially Charlie Chaplin um, discovering Keaton when I was 12. And then he became my, my big, my big favorite. But, you know, in 1970, I, I should have looked this up at 71 or 72. I think maybe 71. Modern Times was re-released to theaters. Oh, okay. And it it and I and uh, uh, so it played. I, I grew up in in a little town called Larchmont out in Westchester County in New York, and it played our local cinema. And I had you know, seen silent movies on TV, and I I have faint memories of my mom driving me to a library somewhere or other every once in a while to see screenings of these films. But I don't know if I'd seen one of Chaplin's features or not. I, 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 it's possible I had seen The Gold Rush because until the mid-1990s, that film uh, was in the public domain and was run on television a lot. But um, I have a very vivid memory of seeing Modern Times in an actual movie theater, not, you know, on a, telev- a small television set. Yeah. Um, and so seeing a silent film in a real regular movie theater and seeing that film, um, I, I still have a very vivid, vivid memory of the images of it, of seeing it. Uh, the fact that uh, I, I'm pretty sure Columbia pictures was distributing that re-release and the film was preceded by a crazy cat cartoon <laughs> from the, from the thirties old. And for some reason I remember it being in color. I don't know if I, there are crazy cat uh, cartoon experts out there who'll know exactly what what film it was, but I have this memory. Uh, but the the film is so in many ways so much a departure or different from Chaplin's other films. Uh, I have I just remember seeing the I remember the brightness of the image. Um, mm-hmm. You know, you're seeing a thirty. I'm seeing a thirty five millimeter print. With a you know sharp, I'm, I'm guessing it's xenon. I don't know if they had xenon or carbon arc at their projector in the seventies. Um, but it's much. I remember the color temperature being a lot more bright and blue. Uh, and then there's there's Chaplin's score, uh, and the fact that there on top of that there are sparingly uh, some sound effects and and the the moment of the sequence with the feeding machine and the uh, electronic noises uh, of the machine uh, backfiring and going wrong is seared into my memory. And uh, for whatever reason, that particular age when I was nine was a year I, that's the year I began collecting film in eight millimeter. Uh, It's the year I discovered darkroom photography and I just began making movies in eight millimeter and but I have a very vivid memory of, of 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 seeing modern times in an actual movie theater, and it still stayed with me all, all these oh, years. That's such a good memory. I I love that when you have a favorite movie that you got a chance to see for the first time in theaters. I think you're touching on something that I agree with, which is difficult right now, and it's that you know seeing a movie in theaters 
can be such a different experience and is such an important one. Oh, it, um, it is a it is yeah. a different experience. You're looking at something so much larger. You're yeah. looking up at it, and there is the, there's the there is a ceremony almost of uh, attending uh, a film, going in, sitting down, the lights going down, and the film beginning, and then you're your brain becoming engaged with the picture, especially with a silent film where the experience is much more like a trance-like state. And then, <laughs> then you're returned and the curtain closes, and the lights come up and you shake yourself back to reality. Um, it's a, it's a totally different experience. And, and mm-hmm. this is kind of a sidebar, but this is what happened with my students at Wesley in the first half of the semester. You know, uh, I play I accompany everything that we watch in class and we all went, everybody went home for mid mid semester break. And then this happened. And so now my students are watching everything on in their laps with recorded tracks. And luckily they all got to see silent film with live accompaniment every week in a, in a really nice screening room. But it's it, that experience is a is a big part uh, is a big part of it. And it is is very different. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I saw. I'll probably put it in the show notes, but I saw a really cool YouTube video earlier this week about somebody uh, that was describing the fact that they used to not really like silent films until they went to a theater, saw a live you know band play while it was going on. You're there with the energy of the audience that's with you too. And that it was such a different experience, it completely changed their outlook on these movies. So um, I think that's cool. Your students got to have that experience and yeah. compare it, like you said, to the one at home. And then they can really see the difference and and why, you know, being completely plugged in, turning off your phone. You know, we always, when you go to movie theater, they say, turn your phone off. Yeah. Keep it on silent. But even at home, I mean, you really have to stay engaged the whole film. Yeah. Uh, but it's worth that time to set aside to really to do that. Yeah, no, no, absolutely. And, and because silent film was never meant to be seen 15 inches across and and it's not just a oh it has to be seen big but because and this is this is something i that i teach as part of my class and it's something i've just in the last bunch of years to become very much obsessed with the the visual storytelling language of silent film you know, there's no wasted screen time. Like you say, you know, mm-hmm. you can't look away because you'll miss something. And we're constantly being fed information. There's no, you know, mood uh, panning shots across a landscape and then up a side of a build. I mean, in a couple of films, there are like that, but it's because uh, you're being given a piece of information. So you have to pay attention and smaller it, it you miss stuff you're not as caught up in 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 the information flow between you and the screen and mm-hmm. what was interesting is the the final essay prompt that i i had for my students write uh, part of the essay prompt was discussing their experience watching silent film in, in a theater and the interesting thing of course this year this semester is that they actually had something to compare it to Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, yeah. usually we, every week we're in in the Powell Cinema at Wesleyan with a big screen, and uh, I'm playing a, a a grand piano. And then for my students, ha- at least it was the second half, so they already had some experience. But they they were very much aware uh, 
of the difference of watching something small in their lap with recorded music. And, Mm -hmm. and so, yeah, it's, it's seeing it that large. uh, There's, it's, uh, it's not just being a cinema purist there. It just works better that way with silent film. Absolutely. Well, I'm going to read the synopsis really quick. As you guys know, there's, this is not a spoiler-free show, so if you want to see the movie first, do that, come back, or maybe we'll introduce you to the movie now. So yeah. here is the summary for Modern Times. Uh, Modern Times is a 1936 American silent film comedy written and directed by Charlie Chaplin in which his iconic Little Tramp character struggles to survive in the modern industrialized world. This film is a comment on the desperate employment and financial conditions many people face during the Great Depression. Conditions created, in Chaplin's view, by the efficiencies of modern industrialization. The movie stars Chaplin, Paulette Goddard, Henry Bergman, Tiny Sanford, and Chester Conklin. It is notable for being the last time that Chaplin portrayed the iconic Little Tramp character. Ah, it did... Um, he, it's, it's interesting. Um, he actually... Well, all right. He he, he does. He, you know, his character uh, of the the barber and great dictator is is still an is kind of an extension of, okay. of the little tramp. But but in, in in but in some ways, it really is the last portrayal of that the silent film version of that tramp character. And that's something I can I can also talk about. But you know, it's it, yeah, it's it's hard to describe this film. I think there, you know, in one of those social media things that was going around a couple of years ago, they had, you know, uh, to d- describe a classic film in one sentence. And I think I wrote down <laughs> something like factory worker loses job, falls in love, leaves town. I mean, that's basically <laughs> the plot line of the film, but um, it's, it's uh, it, the, the other, the other part of it that, that I remember that just strikes me so much is that the film has a very different energy, you know, in most of Chaplin's films, he is this itinerant, uh, lovable, homeless guy who shows up somewhere uh, and, and does his best to fit in. And there's this mm-hmm. interesting dichotomy with his character, which is described very well in, in Walter Kerr's book, The Silent Clowns, that Chaplin's character belongs nowhere and everywhere. You know, mm-hmm. he hasn't, you know, he doesn't fit in. He's from the outside, but put him anywhere and he's an expert at whatever it is. Um, <laughs> and sometimes, you know, we find him already ensconced in whatever's going on. But uh, modern times, um, we dis- we find him already, he is gainfully employed, frantically working on an assembly line, uh, and even from the 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 first shot of the opening titles, um, it says modern. You know, it's a the face of a clock, and it says modern times. And what's interesting, uh, the the in the musical scores composed by Chaplin, uh, aided by uh, a range a very young arranger guy named David Raxon, whose mm-hmm. work may be familiar to and name may be familiar to people. Uh, but the opening title music is this uh, this series of uh, chords in a whole tone scale, which in the late 20s and 1930s, the musical idiom of that sound was um, uh, of modernistic and technology and something that was new and modern. Uh, but mm-hmm. if you don't have that context, it sounds like monster movie music. Like here comes, <laughs> here comes the creature. And so, I mean, this is another thing that is seared into my, my brain is this shot of a clock face. And that's that 
uh, ominous and scary sound chords that that yeah. then modulate into this almost Italian Puccini esque uh, kind of uh, a melody, and then back to these these strident whole tone chords. Um, but what the film, what Chaplin does, and and I don't without a time machine and access to him, there's no way to know. But it's it's almost like um, he knew this was his going to that he might have known this was be his last chance to make a silent film. And uh, there's a great deal more social commentary throughout the film, even mm-hmm. though he's still in many ways, recycling or revisiting themes from other films he'd made over the last 20 years. Um, uh, there's a point to just about everything that's going on in, in the film. And uh, uh, it's, yeah, it's, yeah. And, and a lot of his films aren't so much about the plot or the plot twists, Um you know, uh, except well, even the Gold Rush kind of want, uh, in some ways structurally wanders all over the place and takes three or four reels before he meets Georgia, uh, who he falls in love with, and which moves the plot further along. Um, but um, yeah, there's a lot, a lot more uh, social commentary, mm-hmm. uh, I think, with 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 this about employment and unemployment and being part of a just a being a a cog in a machine, which he almost <laughs> literally becomes at one point. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. He, you know, he winds up going berserk and going down inside the guts of the machine, um, uh, and, and back up out of it, uh, in, in this bizarre, bizarre sequence. <laughs> yeah. I, you know, I, I, that was what you're touching on is what I was thinking when I was watching it, that there was a lot of political and social commentary, Um, that the vibe of the entire movie was a little different from the other ones that I've seen, which, you know, forgive me, I'm definitely no Charlie Chaplin expert. And it's been a while since I've seen some of the other films. But in my memory of it, it's that, you know, it's largely about, um, you know, visual bits and, uh, and just getting to enjoy and see him set up a situation. You watch that. And like you kind of said earlier, the plot feels almost secondary to that. Whereas in this movie, it feels like there's a much stronger message and just the visuals of it. That first scene that you were talking about um, in the factory, that really struck me. It was like, wow, this is such a pretty and interesting set. Um, You know, there's a way to portray the, I think the factory life that wouldn't have been so, I think visually stunning. Yeah, and 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 again, his 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 score, uh, mm-hmm. whether h- how much of it was was his melodies or whatever, it's it's still his sensibility saying, "I want this, I don't want that." I, this was what go- works here, and that and that sort of thing. He was so such a perfectionist and so exacting. <laughs> and there are interviews with David Raxon, and you can you know that I've seen, and as well as one I've seen with a guy named Chauncey Haynes, who was a theater organist who played uh, the opening, uh, the premiere of of The Gold Rush. And Chaplin was, you know, leaning over his shoulder and telling him what to do and what not to do. Uh, <laughs> but that driving uh, factory machine music that you hear in the first couple of reels, um, it's it's a very different energy than than most of other Chaplin's films, where there's a lot more sweetness uh, yeah. to him and and this sort of alienated character on the outside of things finding his way in. And Chaplin is already 
a cog in the machine right right from the f- moment we we discover him with those spanners tightening bolts for what purpose what do those <laughs> things do? i mean and this is another part of the silent film language is that you don't have to explain things yeah there you can you can really just have suggestions of things and it's enough and you'll fill it in in your brain but you don't there isn't a moment during the film where you think wait a second what are those hexagonal bolts do we are never shown what they're for and all he's doing is tightening them and where what what happened you know so you can show something and then we as long as as long as the people on screen are buying whatever the activity is we as an audience will as well and so yeah. uh, there's so there's so much of that and uh, uh, playing with what you can do it's like he, he figured uh, well this is my last shot of doing a silent film I'm gonna uh, do as much as I can with what you can only do in a silent film and and there are little moments as well where sound is employed sparingly uh, and, and in a very uh, excellent uh, way but it, it'll just come on and and, and, and go away. And, and I feel the same way um, about city lights. Uh, which I, I had an opportunity uh, four or five years ago to play the piano and celeste part as part of the Nordic Philharmonic or the Arctic Philharmonic, I forget which name they're going with, uh, for four performances of, of City Lights uh, as part of an orchestra and going on the road on, on the journey with that score and watching the film and being aware of it, it in a way I hadn't before. And I felt like to some extent city lights was because it was made two years after sound had basically taken over. There's so many sequences in that film that only had could happen in a silent film. And it's almost, and again, this is just conjecture, but it's, it's as if he was saying, look what you're giving up. Yeah. <laughs> look at all these great things you can do only in a silent film. You can't do this with sound. Uh, once you, are shooting and projecting at the same speed. And because of sync sound, you're grounding everything in reality. Everything has to be explained mm-hmm. and justified. Yeah. And um, so uh, it's, yeah, there, there's just, there's so many things where things just happen. You know, for instance, the moment when, when Chaplin goes down into the, the bowels of the machinery, um, <laughs> he's on the conveyor belt maniacally tightening the bolts heading into this chute and mm-hmm. tiny Sanford um, is holding on to Charlie with one hand holding his leg and he's holding his other hand up against his face to call out. Hey, he's gone crazy. Uh, people don't clearly are not hearing him. So he lets go of Chaplin's arms to put, both hands up to his mouth so he'll be louder and that's what causes charlie to go down into the into the into the machinery and it wasn't until i began watching the film and slowing it down to cranking speed and and the reality of of what was what i was watching sank in that i realized oh that's why it never occurred to me well that's how he winds up going into the machines is that Mm. Uh, Tiny Sanford, uh, the big guy with the mustache, uh, lets go so that he can be loud, louder by holding both hands up. And the reality of that makes absolutely no sense. But it happens so quickly because we're <laughs> cranking at 16 maybe. Yeah, and it just something- it goes in. And it really, this is the thing about silent film. It's not about dressing up like it's 1920. Um, right. You can, uh, it's, and it's <laughs> fine. But 
Um, there is some, there's a whole layer, a whole level of gags that you can do and get away with, with silent film because of the silence, the monochrome and the speed up, um, that, that is just, it's almost like thinking, uh, I'm in a Warner Brothers cartoon from the 1940s. What can I do? And then finding a way to stage it. Right. I think that's something too, that people that haven't delved you know, delved into the world of silent film as much might not realize, but you know, the frame rate makes a big difference. Uh, you know, when you have sound, usually the frame rate is 24 frames per second. Like you said, this movie, he even kind of alternates, right? Like sometimes it's 18 frames, sometimes it's 16, depending on what the scene is doing or accomplishing, he plays with the speed of it. And you can do that if there's no sound, but if there's sound, then you have to be, like you said, everything has to be a lot more grounded. Yeah, exa- exactly. And if you want to know more about this, there's a there's an extra that I did for cr- the Criterion Collection on on nice. their Blu-ray of there's a Blu-ray of of the kid. Uh, okay. I I've become obsessed with this technique of the speed up of silent film mm. and how silent film performers, especially the comedians or action stars, knew that the films were being shown faster in the theaters and were able to create through careful choreography and choice of camera speeds um, gags that were not funny uh, in in real life or real time, but became funny and became gags when they were sped up through careful choreography. Uh, not, not, not that the speed is what's funny, like uh, when you see f- uh, sped up stuff in Benny Hill or uh, Richard Lester films and stuff like that, but... It was a technique they used. So if you, uh, um, if you don't, if you you can get it on. Uh, it's called a study in undercranking, and it's on mm-hmm. the Blu-ray of the kid. But I, I think I'm sure it's it's uh, watchable wherever Criterion streams their product. But yeah, Chaplin was cranking and he's taking speed shots at a couple of different speeds just so he had choices in the editing room. So there's yeah. there there the shooting records for for City Lights. And modern times and other other films onward uh, survive at the Chaplin estate, and so um, you know they indicate the cranking speed that that Raleigh Tothra was using for for each shot. Yeah, I saw a comparison where somebody like had taken clips, like okay, this is what this you know gag would have looked like. That was me. Twenty four frames. Oh, if you saw that on YouTube, that's me. <laughs> Oh, yeah. awesome. You're not the first person who's told me about my own <laughs> my own undercranking studies, but yeah, that's <laughs> yeah, no, I mean it's it's been something I've been obsessed with for the last several years and um yeah, yeah, I basically took it and slowed it down uh to cranking speed. You see it's not funny at all. It's almost cumbersome. Right. But there there every once in a while more and it's What's fascinating to me is that nobody talks about it. There's hardly any documentary evidence. People didn't talk about it in in interviews. And every once in a while, a little bit more will turn up where somebody says, oh, yeah, well, you know, um, uh, there's, a, there's a book that came out recently uh, about Maurice Costello and the, I think the Costello family. And uh, there's a there's something in the guy who wrote the book, I think it's Terry Shulman, uh, sent me before the book came out, uh, that Maurice Costello went to the theater and saw that the the films were being run faster and developed what he called a slow motion acting style to compensate. Uh, so nobody ever talked about it, but at some point, uh, because the theaters were running the films faster because they could, and 
by doing so, you could get an extra, if, you know, you could squeeze in an extra show at the, at the end of the day and sell more tickets. And it just became part of the language at some point in the mid-teens. Um, but it's, uh, yeah, so if you go to, I have most of my undercranking studies on my YouTube channel at, at youtube.com slash silent film music. But uh, there is another, I had set up another channel, which is Silent Film Speed, where I, I basically take the films shot by shot. Uh, and there's some things that I, I I posted then took down before anybody else yanked it, where I, I took sequences from modern times okay. and slowed them down. Uh, and you can see um, the simplicity and the art uh, uh, and the choreography of what, and there are things like, uh, and it might, I can't remember if we put it in the, the thing on the Criterion Collection, but the, the moment when he goes into the gears, there's something that you don't see uh, that makes it all happen where he, where the that allows him to go down over uh, under and up uh, a giant gear gotcha. uh, uh, but there are little things that get erased also so mm. I could I could you know this is this is a talk I give uh, <laughs> this is something I, I share with my 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 uh, my students halfway through the the semester because I believe it is absolutely part of the language and it's it's not just running the films faster but you have to move, you have to move a little slower, but you also have the luxury of, of, of creating other kinds of things that you can't do, um, in real life, which is yeah. just absolutely wonderful. And that, and that's, I think I'm remembering the point I was trying to make is that, you know, in, with, with silent film, that's what you lose. And this is, I believe is, you know, with, uh, while Chaplin would often said that, well, he was, you know, was concerned about, having a voice for the little tramp and what would he sound like? Um, I, I think, you know, two things. One is that um, the, the little tramp character can only exist in that, that silent film world. Mm He, he's uh, his dexterity and swiftness um, can only exist in that, in that sped up world. And uh, even in Great Dictator, there are some of the, the breakout scenes in, in it were cranked at 21. Um, the dance up and down the sidewalk after Paulette hits the, the stormtroopers in the head with a frying pan. That's undercranked <laughs> a little bit. Uh, there's a couple of others like that. And then in that film, you know, he finally finds a voice for the tramp and he's playing a Jewish barber and he's got this sort of clipped a British accent and okay. Um, but but there, there, I think the... I not he was Charlie Chaplin. He could do whatever he wanted. So everyone else may have switched over to sound in 1929. But I think he realized uh, that th- th- his screen character could really only exist in that world, and that's what happened. Uh, I think Harold Lloyd did the best he could on trying to transition into this his sound, but his the 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 sort of innocence and sweetness of his character kind of got lost in the shuffle of of wisecracks and and depression era uh screwball comedy and and buster was in a different you know he was under contract and it was in a terrible place creatively and so he he it wasn't until the 40s or really the 50s where he could sort of rediscover who he who he was but chaplin had that luxury to continue being that little fellow uh in this bizarre world and nobody nobody minded that he wasn't you know doing one-liners, <laughs> you know, with people. <laughs> right. Yeah. Usually. Okay. So I have a couple quick facts that I'm going to throw out yeah. there. Yeah. And if you want to chime in with them, yeah. uh, and I'm sure you have 
many facts of your own too. Yeah. So I will go ahead with uh, the first one I had was that, uh, you know, discounting later parodies is something we kind of already talked about uh, in novel league films. This was the last major American film to make use of silent film conventions such as title cards for the dialogue. Uh, the very last title card of the film and thus it can be said the entire silent era belongs to the tramp who says, buck up, never say die, we'll get along. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Funny. Yeah. I know. Absolutely. It really is the last. I mean, there were, there were parodies and mo- and the, the, the sad thing is that what most people, a lot of people who are not well versed in it, uh, think of today in terms of what silent movies are about and what they look like uh, is actually born out of conflated memories of the the spoofs of silent movies that 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 oh, movies okay. silent movies have freaky tinky piano music and uh, women are tied to train tracks and <laughs> the title cards all have that that stupid um uh, fl- uh floral border which you never yeah. see in silent movies and people are referred to as my hero and the villain and it's all that which is all stuff that comes from stage melodrama and so those were sp- spoofs of silent films that started in the 30s and 40s and people still think that, that that's what silent film is and and mm. uh so yeah so pretty much uh, uh the artist uh, was what it was and uh and mel brooks's silent movie had some some of the parts of silent film language uh but pr- and uh but pretty yeah the modern times was the last american silent film yeah the other one that i had was that the film originally ended with charlie chaplin's character suffering a nervous breakdown and being visited in the hospital by the gammon who was who has now become a nun this ending was filmed, though apparently only still photographs from the scene exist today. Uh, Chaplin dropped this ending and shot a different, more hopeful one instead. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think that was the right call. Yeah. <laughs> Just, oh, yeah. I don't know. Because it's it's like, I mean, there's some, even though it's a very funny film and, you know, the, the little tramp, he's such an endearing character. I think that ending would have been a little too somber and maybe you know, too realistic. Whereas like, I think his character throughout the film, he sort of exists outside of society and he's got this, you know, he's impossible to keep down, even though bad things keep happening to him. So I think ending it that sadly, I I don't know. I I don't think I would have liked that as much. Yeah. Although I, I I think that it's pretty, pretty much uh, in many ways in line with the point he was trying to make True. about, yeah. about technology and what it was doing to people. And it's, it is kind of the, an ending you would expect from a German expressionist film from the twenties, but, and I could see why <laughs> he, he shot it. And that was part of his process is that he would just shoot things and, and see what he felt about it and watch it and, and watch the rushes and tinker with it endlessly. And, go back and reshoot and, 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 and cause he had, again, he had that kind of luxury. Um, and it is, but it is also part of the language of the way not only silent film comedy is made, but, but the way all physical comedy is developed is that you have an idea. It could be pre-planned, but you also know that when you get on set, something, some magical things will happen, uh, while you're rehearsing it, something will happen while you're, the cameras are turning or while you're in front of the audience and that then, you stay open to that and that uh, becomes part of what it is. So uh, because he had that, that luxury of, well, I'm going to shoot this ending and, and, and then may have realized, okay, this, you know, when looking at the whole film, 
oh, I don't want to do this to everybody. <laughs> you know, we're we're just coming out of the out of the out of the depression, and 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 yes, this is the point I'm making. But, um, you know, he, he went he went for the other ending. Yeah, it put a more hopeful future. <laughs> yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah. Um, the last one that I had uh, was that this was one of the films because of its political sentiments convinced the uh, House Un-American Activities Committee that Char- Charlie Chaplin was a communist, a charge he adamantly denied. Yeah, yeah. Uh, if it wasn't this film, there were other th- things he said or statements he made uh, <laughs> uh, that, well, you know, the the the. The, the McCarthy era, um, they were looking for anything uh, yeah. they could they could get and twist out of out of out of uh, out of context uh, to to justify their 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 the the witch hunt that they were having at the time, and the fact that Chaplin had never become a U.S. citizen mm-hmm. uh, allowed them to remove you know take away his reentry permit. Uh, wow. When he when he went to uh, England for the premiere of Limelight, mm. so you know he's on on a on an ocean liner on his way to England, and you know that while he's at sea, they revoke his reentry permit because it's it's uh, fifty I forget fifty two or fifty three, and uh, uh, there is a uh, as it. I turned up a kinescope of a, a, a news the Camel News Caravan, a news broadcast where. Um, uh, the, the chaplain's uh, reentry permit being revoked is announced on the oh. news, and the it, I, I put it up on on YouTube, and the the, the newscaster uh, says, you know, and as you know, uh, Mr. Chaplin is not a U.S. citizen, has been making a lot of money uh, here in the U.S. for many many years, and 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 there's this 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 uh, uh, yeah, so it, you could certainly look at modern times and find lots of evidence there if you were looking for ammunition right but at the same time it's like really what they're saying is you're not even allowed to be upset about the way things are comment on them at all because if you do then you're communist automatically yeah which and, i feel like is something we're struggling with yeah today. it's like- <laughs> yeah yeah and in the early 50s everybody was looking over their shoulder and it was a it was a it was um yeah it was, it was a really weird kind of kind of era for for people uh mm-hmm. in 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 the arts yeah so uh did you have any quick facts you wanted to add or would you rather uh, go ahead and start breaking down a couple of the scenes um uh um no well, let's go go ahead and start breaking down some of the scenes and maybe some other things will occur to me Sure, sure. Okay, so yeah. uh, I guess I, you know we've already talked a little bit about that first scene, but what are, what are some of your other favorite scenes in this movie? Well, the feeding machine sequence is brilliant, and I <laughs> I have a you know my my daughter is twenty three now, but when she was very little, and we have we have a sixteen millimeter projector, and and um, I I just right before uh, maybe some months before she was Molly was born, I came into a collection of film through a front that came from a distant uncle who was removed a few times that I hardly ever knew, but who had this, uh, he had passed away and I wound up with his film collection. A lot of it was dupey old Chaplin uh, shorts uh, and bad prints, but one of the th- things in the collection was a print of modern times. Mm-hmm. And uh, like a lot of 
this film and a lot of Chaplin films, you can just isolate one sequence and watch it and it'll hold up on its own. And uh, running, running the feeding machine sequence for, for Molly or for, you know, at the end of a play date, we would always, this is a way we would calm everybody down (laughs) while we were waiting for the mom or whoever to show up and take so-and-so home. I would run a Laurel and Hardy comedy or we would run, you can't run all of modern times, but the feeding machine sequence, it was, it was a, <laughs> was one. And, and it's so, it's so simple and it has such an interesting and, um, important point, uh, to it. Uh, and it's, you know, there is something that I've noticed about Chaplin's films is that in almost all of them, there is a sequence where people sit down and eat or try to eat. Um, mm-hmm. And there are, there's always gags about indigestion and table manners in a lot <laughs> of the films. Um, it, it's it's something that just and and, and he, I, once again here is here is Chaplin's uh, last silent film, and here he is, and he's strapped into a table, so he has to. And there's that that napkin, uh, wh- that mouth wiper that comes in. There's your table manners, and then he's getting hit in the face with a with a pie, which is another piece of silent film mythology that really never hardly ever happened and the the corn and and even the in dictator hurts my teeth yeah <laughs> like every yeah time i see it it reminds me of like there there was like a viral video that was going around where kids had put like a corn on a uh drill and we're trying to eat it and well that's exactly and that's exactly yeah. what happens in 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 the feeding machine sequence and there's yeah. a, there's a, there's a piece of uh, oh, there's there's a sequence in Great Dictator where they've all they're all eating their little muffin and there's a coin inside and there's it's him and Chester Conklin and <laughs> one or two other character people sitting around eating, mm-hmm. and it's in the Count, it's in the Immigrant, um, uh, there's the eating the shoe sequence in the Gold Rush where there's two people sitting at a table and it's food stuff, and so yeah the the feeding machine sequence, um, it you know it's it's one of these films where. Modern times is where there's just so many breakout moments. Uh, the moment, the sequence where he goes berserk uh, on the assembly line. Uh, yeah, I love that part again, the, the sequence where with the stomach gurgles, where it's just him and a character actress sipping coffee. Um, again, two people sitting and having with gags about indigestion. Um, the prison break. Um, uh, uh, you know, the, uh, roll the sequence where he's blindfolded roller skating. I mean, there's, it's 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 hard to 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 pick one. There, there's just so many sequences throughout the film, and and it's. I have this thing for films that have a nonlinear narrative and still hold together. And and yeah, like I said, the the plot line of the film is factory worker loses job, falls in love, and leaves town. Uh, but the film is ten reels. It's it's you know it's a hundred, hundred and ten minutes, whatever it is. And you know you're carried through from one sequence to another. And and it's yeah, there's just I mean, we're we're what were some of the things that that stood out for you? Well, you know, one big thing that stood out for me was uh, Paulette. Yeah. I really, like, a couple things. Just from, uh, I guess, a modern perspective of someone that hasn't seen this movie before, you know, I think there is a, uh, and and part of this could be, like, silent film mythology, like you're saying, where uh, you see a woman that is presented as, like, oh, this woman is so beautiful, and then you see her and you're like, okay, like, I guess for the time or something like that, you know, 
kind of harsh, but um, I think a lot of people view it that way. And Paulette looks like so incredibly modern to me. And I don't know if that is because, um, you know, fashion wise, we're sort of in a weird way coming back around or like we're at a time where everything is in fashion again, but like her hair, her dress and her look, it, it comes across as so beautiful by today's standards if that kind of makes sense no uh, absolutely and and yeah. and he is not uh i mean he's th- this is the other thing about modern times is that while city lights still feels like an older film and a lot of chaplin's films you know there's a dickensian or late victorian sensibility to yeah. a lot of them including the costuming and makeup and uh the various characters um mores um Modern Times is very much a 1936 film, while Chaplin, you know, that's you know his. I, I, I an expert will tell you if 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 it's if he's dyed his hair black or if he's wearing a wig, you can see the makeup. It's not a real mm-hmm. mustache. Um, yeah. And some of the people, there's a little bit more quote unquote silent film makeup. Uh, Alan Garcia, who's the factory right. owner, but but Paulette uh, looks like she's out of 1936. I mean. Exactly. Yeah. Her you, her you, physicality. You yeah. Her, and her her physicality is still you you know you, you can tell the people in the film who had been in silent movies for a long time because they know how right. to move. Chester Conklin, Henry Bergman, Alan Garcia, Tiny Sanford. They know how to put the pauses in and move slower. And uh, while Mister 180 takes uh, didn't make her do it over and over, she does come off a little manic. Uh, because mm-hmm. she she hasn't doesn't have that in her bones from ten years of vaudeville, or or from uh, uh, acting for an undercrank camera for ten years, but there is something yes there's something contemporary to the time uh, mm-hmm. a, a, about about her her looks. Yeah, and she's um, as they point out uh, in some of the behind the scenes stuff I watch, she's more of an equal to him than a lot of times the lead female character in silent films tend to be. And I think that's another thing that makes her feel a little bit more modern. Um, and yeah, looks yeah, she's wise, she's involved. Like, yeah, she's very she's involved, involved in and, and and it's and when you say lead silent film, uh, I, I think you, you that's more uh, for me. It's like the 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 female lead in a comedy where yeah, especially yeah. Chaplin, like we're in City Lights. <laughs> the woman not only is she pretty and off to the side, but she's blind, so she can't do anything. Uh, and and you know, uh, um, usually with the with silent comedy, the the woman is uh, someone who is attractive and has a nice dress and the guy runs around doing everything i think with the exception of buster keaton who who, uh who managed to often pair himself with a woman who was equally at sea uh, as him and she's along for the ride and she's involved she tries to help um and with chaplin that's not the case but you're absolutely right in in modern times uh, um you know charlie's character meets paulette's character and they they're helping each other out, which is a yeah, real they departure. Feel very, very equal, and and uh, I think yeah, in 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 some of the older films or in the the representations that I'm thinking of, it's kind of like they're sort of another, you know, like character in the background, like you are kind of saying to play off of instead of involved. And so that's what I that I think of it. And I think you're so right about her, you know, makeup and her dress and how it, it feels less 
you know, theater or vaudeville, it, it feels a little bit more modern. I think that's why she looks that way. Don't mean yeah. to imply that back no, then people no. were unattractive in any way. No, but- no, but she, she doesn't yeah. have uh, the silent movie makeup. She does not right. have the thick, the, the layer of pancake white and, and the eyeliner that you exactly. might normally yeah. see. And even if you look uh, at at the circus and the Goldrush, it's it's present, not maybe as, as much. Uh, but yeah, it's... Uh, she is an active part of the storyline. Mm-hmm. Uh, she, you know, she, uh, she finds them a job or she finds the house or he finds a house. And, and this is something there. It's an adventure they're on together. It's not like, okay, you wait here. I'll be right back. And then he goes and, <laughs> and fights, you know, the civil war and then comes yeah. back and finds her again uh, or climbs up the side of a building while she stands on the sidewalk. I mean, you know, Paulette's character and in, 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 the. Uh, and in the gold rush, you know, Georgia stays in town and Charlie goes off and finds the mine and braves bears and, and storms. Uh, but in, in modern times, it's, and, and that's, you know, in part, I think, why the two of them walk down the road together at the end of the picture. Right. You feel like they really are in sync. It's not the, the comedy isn't coming from her saying like, oh, man, you know, shape up and and get real and get a real job. They're, they're very much on the same page. So I like that about her. And then as far as specific scenes go, I love the department store yes. section of the movie. Yes. Um, I, I love how, you know, you, we move through so many different scenes. Like you said, it's nonlinear, but it feels very cohesive. And one of my favorite scenes is them going through the different, you know, levels of this department store. Yeah. Partly because it's fun. Cause we don't really have that anymore. And it's, cool to see that again and then of course the roller skating scene oh yeah and you know all Just, of that I, that's one of my favorite parts yeah of and the roller skating is it's so you know he roller skates in two movies and he's so good at it um yeah, you know he's know, he, like, in the rink in 1960 <laughs> yeah in the rink in 1916 and then you know 20 years later in in, in modern times but it's he's just so uh graceful and he's and he's got a reason to do it and there's that extra thrill moment about the 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 edge of the the platform but um yeah, yeah the, the department store sequence yeah it, it is you know i i try to explain there's certain things that in in doing uh either my class or when i do shows and introduce the film i i try to make a point of making certain aspects of what people are about to see you know put them in context and every uh-huh. couple of years i have to find new analogies because i'm aware uh of what uh, a contemporary audience uh, especially one of younger people may or may not know and it's easy for people like ah young people today they don't know but at the same time okay well (laughs) you don't know what a five and ten is you know and i show my students uh the film shoes directed by lois weber from 1916 the lead character uh, she works in a five and ten well what's a five and ten what is a five and 10 cent store? What is Woolworths? And I had to explain, okay, you know, it's, well, I looked it up once and, and five cents and 10 cents in 1916 money is like a dollar or $2 today. Right. I said, it's like, like a, a do- it's exactly, it's like dollar general and you have all these different departments, yeah. but the idea of a department store. Uh, and when I show people, uh, introduce the film called the floor Walker, where Chaplin, it's a 1916 film where Chaplin, gets a job as a floor walker in a department store. And first of all, what is a floor walker anyway? Um, (laughs) And what is a department store? And and there's a similar character in Safety Last, so you have to put it in it. So the idea that, okay, well, a department store is like, 
a smaller version of what a mall is, except that instead of separate stores, you just had departments for all these mm-hmm. different topics. But yeah, it's it's a it's a it's a fun sequence, and because there are so many departments in a department store, you can just go from <laughs> one gag sequence to another. Oh, here's this, and here's the food, and here's the bed, and here's the fur coats, and here's roller skates, and you know we can we can uh, take take some screen time to have these little little sequences that that move from one thing to the other until they 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 run into the 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 factory workers who are, who are broken who have broken into the store yeah i yeah you're so right about you know explaining context i i thought about that as you're as you're describing it because yeah i know what a department store is but yeah somebody even just you know 10 years younger than me uh, you know, somebody that is, uh, or, or, or younger, frankly, but <laughs> in yeah. college or high school, I mean, they really have no frame of reference for that. So that's so interesting. Yeah. It's, it's um, really important so that people, so that people get the joke, especially, mm-hmm. uh, top topical things that would have been hilarious in 1922. Um, uh, and you figure these people have worked hard to choose that, that gag, uh, and for it to not land today, um, it's not going to, you know, and so to honor the work. So like uh, the Harold Lloyd film, Grandma's Boy, his first feature length, full length feature, uh, opens with a shot of him cranking something, cranking, cranking, cranking. And we pull back and we see it's an ice cream maker. Um, <laughs> but what, what's what's funny about that to people in 1922 is that the automobile uh, was something that was really becoming more and more something that you could own thanks to the model t uh, it was an afford it was sort of the the windows 95 versus the mac of of cars <laughs> where and it was more affordable more people had it but you had to get out and crank it from the front and it would be hard to crank it so in 1922 you're watching the first shot of the film and you think harold is winding is trying to start a model t and we then we pull back and we see he's churning ice cream and so <laughs> Uh, if you don't explain that to an audience, and I don't say, I don't say what the the punchline is. I just said this is sure. what's happening. Everybody yeah. had a crank, and sometimes it was, you had to be careful because the crank would spin around and hit you in the arm. And so now the gag, because Lloyd was someone who relied heavily on audience testing, and if that joke didn't get a laugh, it would have been reshot or dropped. So mm-hmm. you want it to get the laugh. That that Lloyd and his his staff put in there. So yeah, explaining the context and yeah, explaining to people what is a department store is is uh, is important. I think you know a lot of the stuff in the factory really works for today in the sense that you know uh, when I was a kid and we learned about like the industrial era, um, that seems so incredibly far away and hard to understand and relate to. But as I feel like a lot of uh, the workforce is moving back into factory type settings like Amazon and, you know, other jobs like that, I feel like that makes some of those scenes almost make more sense now than even just a few years ago. Yeah. And, and the, the move toward automation and removing humans from the process right. um, that the feeding machine a sequence is is uh, it's still extremely relevant because yeah, there's this it's thing more of relevant. <laughs> right you know you know by cutting your cutting your factory workers lunch hour to thirty minutes or 
or am I thinking of a, a line from a from Duck Soup? Um, <laughs> well, there's a part in this yeah. movie where it's it's pretty funny that he's in a hurry to do something and do something I think wrong, but he still makes an effort to clock in, and that's a funny moment too. That he's like so a part of that world. It's the it's it's, it's though, during yeah it's, okay. it's when no no it's 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 when he's gone berserk and he's running yeah, around yeah. up and down. <laughs> oh, hang on a second, I have to punch out. Right. You know, it's very important. It's, it's a jab at that type of job that it's like it, how little sense a lot of things make. Even, you know, you talked about earlier, the nuts and bolts, like what are they doing? What does it matter? And like, that's how that job, you know, feels like what, what is anything you're doing at that job? What, what does it matter? So, yeah. Yeah. I feel like a lot of modern audiences today would, you know, really be able to relate to some of those things. Yeah. Just the analogy of some of the things like uh, when, Ch- you know, he and Chester Conklin, who, for those of you who don't know, uh, Chester was a comedian at Keystone in 1913-14 along with Chaplin. And Chaplin tended to cast people in his films who either had no experience who he could show how to move or mm. who already knew what they were doing. Uh, gotcha. Often would he would cast people who had been in the Fred Carnos were the speechless comedians in, in England, uh, like Eric Campbell and Albert Austin, uh, or Chester, you know, everybody just knew how to move and mm-hmm. they didn't have to be explained. So, so he and Chester Conklin are hired to go in and service the machinery. And then Chester becomes, you know, gets stuck in the machinery and then Chaplin has to <laughs> feed him. And it's a callback to the feeding machine. He, now he's feeding something in a, somebody in a machine, um, you know, uh, it's still, uh, and and you know, there we are. We're we're back to two people sitting and eating and, and table manners, um, yeah. but um, there's a there's a you know, and again, uh, because of even though it's locked in 1936, there's something rather contemporary about it that it, it it's still it's a, a lot of parts of the film uh, because it's about employment and unemployment and the the meaninglessness of working at a a, a a job that is you're just tightening bolts somewhere um whether that's what you're actually doing or what if that's what it feels like um it's it's still it still resonates in a very strong way yeah i think too something i i thought about i was watching a, another behind the scenes thing and they were talking about how a lot of the voices you hear in the movie i think all of them except for a couple times, maybe Charlie Chaplin at the end and a couple other times when you hear a voice, it's through a machine. Exactly. Like when he's in the bathroom and his boss appears on a screen or if they're listening to a radio and there's something meta about that because it's like, you are also listening to voices from a machine. You're not actually hearing their real voices. You're watching a movie and hearing their voices recorded. And so they're kind of playing on that as like a double inside joke in the movie. Yeah, exactly. And, and, and there's, there's, also this this aesthetic of if we if we're going to have the sound of a voice we have to justify where it's coming from so the the explanation about how the feeding machine works comes from a phonograph record Mm -hmm. it's not done in intertitles it could have been somebody could have walked in in a tuxedo and pointed at things and spoken in title cards but uh, it was for whatever reason easier to to do it that way, uh, but it's done from from a machine. And, and this was a this was a challenge that that we you see in early '30s films with musical underscore, 
where uh, to varying degrees it almost completely disappears and only exists when somebody turns on the radio or if there's a nightclub in the next room uh, in order to justify it. And there are lots of films from the early 30s where music, where you would, you're, you're almost aching to hear background music or underscore, it's just not there. And so uh, there's a book called After the Silence, S-I-L-E-N-T-S, by Michael Slowick, um, wh- who, where he you know, went th- – isn't a lot of documentation about the reasoning why they did or didn't use music. Uh, but he went through and watched like 250 or so films from the early thirties and documents the, the trajectory of the use of, or the lack of use of, uh, and gradual abandoning of, uh, musical underscore. And it's, I don't know if it was because of the success of modern times, but there is a, a moment in the mid to early late thirties where, musical underscore starts to re-enter film and become what we now think of as film music, where it's a little bit more uh, functioning as underscore uh, and borrowing more conventions from opera than what silent film scoring was in the 20s, which is a, a, had more roots in, also in stage melodrama and vaudeville, uh, where you would have mu- themes that are repeated, uh, that call attention to themselves. Or, you know, if you would have a scene with a dog, you would play a song called The Whistler and His Dog, which everybody knew. Um, so, but, the, you know, in the early 30s, if there was music, it had to be justified. Somebody would literally, in the middle of a scene, walk over, turn on a radio and sit down and the underscore would come out of the, out of the radio and then they would go turn it off. That's um, so interesting. And, I, do you think also it could be because when you move from silent film to, you know, also talking, um, then you really have to think about the volumes of the different things that you're hearing. I feel like that can be complicated. Anybody that's ever recorded, done a podcast. Yeah. I mean, that's part of anything, it. It's challenging. There, there were some, yeah, there are some studios that had the ability to mix and post dub, and there were some that didn't. Um, this okay. is also documented in Michael's book. Uh, but there, and and I don't know if this was actually the case. And one of the points that that's in, I think it's in uh, William K. Everson's American Silent Film, is that, um, you know, it had to be justified. If you were suddenly watching a film and suddenly there was music, you had to explain where it was coming from. Yeah, and, it's interesting. Yeah, and then today you never you know think, think about, about it. it. And yet yeah. RKO had Max Steiner under contract, and it's the early '30s, and you you can't imagine King Kong without that amazing score, and that's mm-hmm. what makes the film work. Um, but but there's a lot of like one of the things I was doing um, uh, up until all, all the shutdown <laughs> happened is that for the last two years I've been doing a live uh, theater organ score for the 1931 Dracula. Oh, which awesome. has absolutely no music in it except for uh, the opening titles where they play uh, the opening title music is a theme from Swan Lake. You know, so the film starts oh. da, 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 because, you know, when you think of vampires. Um, <laughs> so and then and there are stretches where you're like aching for some kind of underscore to connect you with the emotion of the scene. And there's nothing there. And. There, there, uh, Universal was a late adopter to musical to, to mixing and and the ability to do underscore. I've also heard that uh, uh, Todd Browning, the director, wanted it that way. But I, I also think that if he had wanted a score, Universal might 
very well and said, no, there's no budget or technology for it. The first, you know, the Carla Frankenstein has no music in it. Um, and so the, so the wall to wall score of modern times is such a, a huge, um, shift uh, musically in ter- and in terms of film music and in terms of Chaplin's uh, music and, and understanding of what a film score is. Um, and this is the other thing that I, I got out of, again, going on the ride with the score of City Lights that mm-hmm. because of what I know about what film scoring was in the 20s, for the most part, uh, for him having that specific an idea of what goes here, what goes there, what kind of music goes here, um, uh, it, I was really struck by his uh, innate understanding of what what kind of music works, and and even the, and especially the score for modern times uh, is so uh, uh, as what how much of it was him and how much of it is David Raxon helping him or saying yes or no or whatever. Um, th- so many of the melodic lines are very very simple. Um, uh, some of the melodies are just even uh, the the love theme, which became "Smile" when somebody added lyrics in the fifties, is just okay. kind of wandering up and down the keys on a piano. Um, uh, there's a theme from "City Lights," which is just slowly and melodically wandering up up a scale, <laughs> and then back down. Uh, the promenade theme. Um, a lot of that that factory music is just a. Uh, a chord played one note at a time over and over and over, not in a Philip Glass kind of way, but it's it's melodic enough to engage you, but not busy enough that you're distracted by it. Um, yeah. And knowing that, okay, I can craft the, the music to fit the film. It's not a Mickey Mousing kind of way, although there are stops and starts, speed ups and slowdowns that mir- that not mi- so much mirror, but enhance or or support what's happening on screen. Uh, and, and it always mystifies me when, uh, I see somebody is, uh, trying to do a, a show of modern times and they're going to accompany it live. First of all, you can't, it's the films under copyright <laughs> and invariably whoever that is, get their show gets shut down by the Chaplin estate. Cause you know, you have to clear it. And, and also why sure. would you, why would you think you could do a better job uh, than Chaplin did on on the I mean for me mo- the scores for Modern Times and City Lights but especially Modern Times is kind of a blueprint for uh, scoring a Chaplin film uh, and right. for me anyway yeah no I I completely agree and he made such specific choices like you said if you try to come up with your own arrangement yeah it's kind of uh, you know almost insulting to, yeah. to what he did because it he's, was so he's precise. already and he's already figured it out and just in the arrangement <laughs> there's there's an um a documentary about film music that Arthur Kleiner uh was involved with uh, as a host and writer uh um Arthur Kleiner was a, the Museum of Modern Art's first silent film accompanist and he was had a full-time position with an office at MoMA from 1939 to 67 or 68. And in the late 60s, he worked on a documentary and he interviews David Raxon. And Raxon talks about the Chaplin knew, okay, well, this we uh, this line should be on a, a bassoon and this should be an English horn. And he knew exactly what sounds he wanted. Uh, he was that exact and that, and that specific. And um, the, the, the score for, for, and there, there's a, an LP that I had also as a kid that y- y- United Artists Records put out of the score 
from uh, modern times, which is an unusual recording in that there are uh, hunks. It's it it does it is taken from the soundtrack, but the sequences that have sound effects in them you don't hear. So so somewhere there is a a a, a track without the sound effects mixed into it yet that was sourced for this recording. And I'm sure it's been reissued on, on, on CD, but I had that and I, you know, a big yellow, uh, uh, a, a jacket, uh, with a drawing, a, a sort of cut out paper cut out version of Chaplin with the gears. Um, okay. but I listened to that over and over and over and it's, nice. it's, 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 a it's a wonderful, it's an, a really amazing film score. Yeah. Yeah. The, the last uh, scene that I was thinking about um, when I was, you know, talking about this movie, um, the last scene that really stands out to me is actually the ending scene. Mm. Um, you know, I love the, the dance that Paulette does. And I love the fact that the plot, you know, ends with the tramp finally succeeding at something and excelling, you know, but he's very hesitant um, which I think is sort of like a commentary and he doesn't want to speak, right? Because yeah. he's Charlie Chaplin, he doesn't want to talk and she's convincing him like you can sing and you're like saying, you know, this guy doesn't even say anything. Yeah. <laughs> and so there's a, a really great buildup to that when she's dancing and, and somebody had pointed out too that she plays a lot of different characters almost in this movie. So this is like her final big character. She's in this really pretty dress and yeah. she does a great dance. And then it leads into her encouraging him, okay, you can do this you know, let's practice, let's, let's get this done. And then he goes out there and just totally kills it. It's yeah. a great fun uh, song. And he gets around the whole not talking thing by the whole song being gibberish, yeah. which is awesome. But also just his, um, his routine that he does, which is very like mime like and uh, back to what he does best and just showcasing like, again, kind of like what you were saying earlier, like this is what you're going to miss out on. Like there's a real art to this. Of course, you know, movies going into being able to talk and all that, that's incredible and, you know, has a lot of value, but you're also losing something from, you know, I guess yesteryear at this point, but it, it is truly an art form and, you know, miming and everything that he does, it is artistic and it is important. And so I think to, and it doesn't quite end there, but to sort of the last huge scene be that moment, um, I, I really, I really enjoyed that part. Oh yeah. Cause you, as an audience, you're, you're, you're also scared for him. You're thinking, Oh my, how is he going to talk? I've, you know, for, for 21 years, you know, this guy hasn't, hasn't said anything and we've had sound for seven years and I, you know, we haven't heard his, what is he going to do? How can he, this guy talk? And, um, it's this, uh, I, I, you know, to, to borrow the, 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 the phrase of being meta you're almost like you're you're sort of worrying with him like oh yeah how are you gonna sing and <laughs> and it's done uh you know we 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 slide into 24 frames per second very very smoothly and and uh you mentioned the gesturing and this is a part of silent film performance that is unique to uh the medium which is this simple gesturing that uh, reinforces what you're saying. Uh, mm -hmm. I was I was involved with uh, a theater piece called The Final Reel a couple of years ago, and it was done. I was brought in to do music, a live live accompaniment to a silent film that was going to be performed live on stage. But uh, as a theater piece uh, created and performed by a group called Parallel Exits, a physical comedy theater troupe, and I've done some mm -hmm. things with them, and 
the basic conceit of the show is that uh, we have all gathered uh, in this uh, art house that's about to close. Um, but there's this movie uh, that has been around. It's a classic. The last reel has always been missing. Uh, some crazy film collector has found it and had it restored. And we're going to watch the film. And it happens on stage. And the young guy whose grandfather owned the theater uh, introduces the film collector. And so, anyway, something crazy happens. He stumbles into the movie that's happening on stage. And so, and I'm accompanying it. I, I play the film accompanist at the, th- at the theater. And, 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 um, and so anyway, it's, it, it's this whole thing is sort of a lift on, on Sherlock Jr. Entering the film and coming back out. And then he pulls the people from the film back out into the house. And, and we go back and it's, it's, it was a lot of fun, but during the rehearsal process, you know, when I d- developed a score for the, quote unquote film during the rehearsal process. I didn't, you know, sit down and write it out and then show up and I'm there and they're rehearsing and uh, they're talking and uh, working on the blocking and the characters are talking to one another. And at one point, uh, Mark Lonergan, who the director said, okay, now we're at a point where we have to stop talking because when we do this for real, um, you guys can't talk out loud. And the actors all looked at each other, and they re- and we, they tried doing the scene. They realized how will, if we're not if we're just mouthing things. How are we going to know, f- you know, each other? What's going on? Right. And you and give so each other cues. Right. And I said, well, here, you know, they turned to me and said, well, Ben, what would they have done in a silent film? And I said, there is this language of that I've observed in silent film where people will gesture not in a a literal over the top way uh if you know, you know when they say i want you they point to their eye and then you know but they'll yeah. <laughs> just gently gently um i don't know about i wouldn't know i don't know if i'd call it pantomime it's more like space work uh but yeah. just enough uh to reinforce what you're doing so the people watching it get it you would do this if you were speaking out loud to somebody uh, and again, this is a thing where nobody says, hey, why are you miming stirring a coffee cup um, uh, within the scene? But for us uh, sitting in the in the dark in the theater, we go, oh, yeah, he's asking to get, you know, can you pour me some, do you want some coffee? Um, so all all of what Chaplin does in in that musical number, uh, gesturing uh, while, it, you know, we've, we've been shown the lyrics on his cuff, so we kind of know what's going on. And then while he's singing these gibberish lyrics to an old, old uh, tune called Titina, um, he's gesturing uh, to reinforce the parts of the story for us to figure out. And and the other thing about that sequence that I found is that, you know, there's this huge lurch at the end when it zips back into, you know, uh, the undercrank world off stage. And there is another verse to the song um, that I've seen in in a, a, and I think it's a, it was issued in Laserdisc in, in another country that was cut. Um, mm. That where it, his transition, he, he ends the song and it's much smoother. Uh, so it, it, the way it was originally released, I think originally intended, it's a smoother um, transition back. But it is this, it is this unusual moment where you're, you, you know. Uh, she and he and everybody in the, in the film, but in the theater also is running. How is he going to sing? What is he going to sound like? <laughs> How is he going to do this? And and it's and it, like you said, it's it's brilliant. You realize 
you know, uh, you forget that this guy spent, you know, several years in vaudeville, in well, the music hall, and he totally has the chops to do it. Right. Yeah. He has a great voice. And oh, yeah. It works really well with the timing of the song. Yeah, it's it's just a great scene. Yeah. Well, were there any other scenes that we haven't talked about yet that you wanted to make sure we covered? Um. Oh, it, like I said, it's it's so it's so hard uh, to to, <laughs> to, to, to to pick all of them. Uh, they're all they're all brilliant, and they just. Uh, uh, yeah, we could go on for hours talking about <laughs> about uh, the the film and how well it's made. But I think the most important thing is. Uh, watch it and and watch it on as large a television set or screen as you as you can as you i would recommend anybody do with any 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 silent film um what's great is that the chaplin films are pretty much all available now in gorgeous Mm -hmm. blu-ray editions um and with a lot of really good extras uh again i heartily recommend you check out a study in undercranking um but uh no, I, I just just watch this film and watch it with with in if if you're or you yourself are a classic film fan, and you are uh, on lockdown with somebody who may not be make make them watch this with you, you know the <laughs> I the like hardest that tagline. <laughs> yeah, you know this is the the what a, the hardest thing about getting somebody to watch a silent film is dragging them past the word silent, and. Yes. And one of the fun things that I, that's happened from the silent comedy watch party from comments I've seen online or people have written to me is that people have said, you know, I'm watching these films with my mom and she's now she's a Buster Keaton fan or, you know, um, my significant other was never really interested in this. But, you know, he's I'm watching this every week and, you know, he's kind of getting into it or people are watching these films with their kids. And uh, once you once you, s- you sit down and watch one. Um, you you get what silent film is, and it's not mm-hmm. a movie where you have to watch, hold your breath the whole time, uh, which right. is what it sounds like. But you know, and <laughs> and modern times is a great one to start with. I agree. Yeah, you actually answered in a way my last two questions because my last two questions are always, you know, number one, uh, why do you like this movie so much? Why do you think you've seen it so many times? So can you summarize that in a in a sentence? Yeah. Um, <laughs> you know. I, I I'm not really sure why. I mean, I I, uh, I like I said, I I I connected with silent film and with Chaplin at an early age, and you know, mm-hmm. with some kids, it's construction equipment or dinosaurs or trains, and for me, it was <laughs> silent movies and Chaplin. I don't and I don't know, and you know, this isn't a film I watch over and over and over. I don't really go back to it because um, I have this this memory of of it, and. Uh, there's almost the for me. There's this, uh, you know, you want to hold on to that memory of yeah. having seen it. I wanted to because I, I knew you were probably going to ask me something like that. There's a great quote. <laughs> um, there's a book called The Silent Clowns by Walter Kerr, uh, and if you don't know the book, uh, for a lot of us classic film fans or silent film fans, it's one of the go-to books on silent film comedy. Uh, mm-hmm. It's published in 1975, and while there are some things in it that uh, are either are dated because films he talks about as being lost have been found, or there are certain comedians who he doesn't really uh, discuss, like Charlie Chase or Roscoe Arbuckle, uh, I think that part of that comes from the fact that a next generation has now come along and we've re- re- rediscovering some of these people. Um, right. But 
Walter Kerr talks about his own personal experience uh, going to the movies in the teens and, and 20s uh, as part of his discussion of these films. And he, in the first few chapters, which I assigned to my students because he, in a very well-written and not too academic way, uh, describes the basic aesthetic of what silent film is and how, why, how it works and why it works. But he talks about his, his experience in revisiting these films that he had seen as a child or a teenager in a screening room as part of the research for, for the book. And he says, the first time you renew acquaintance with a, such a film, vagrant smoke curls of nostalgia hover somewhere just beyond vision, just beyond smell, just beyond touching. They're almost there. You can almost remember, but the film unreeling is already asserting itself for the thing it is without you. It is in the process of killing nostalgia. Nostalgia depends on the absence of what is longed for, survives only as recollection. Mm. And he goes on and on uh, about that. And this is a book that I have an unusual connection to in that uh, when I was 12, uh, this book came out and I, uh, I, it was a present that I got among many things I got as a, for my bar mitzvah. Um, and, uh, I had to, for a book project for social studies, had to see a particular silent film. And this is the mid seventies. There's no cable. There's no VHS. Uh, the only way to see silent film is to mow a lot of lawns and save up money and buy a copy and a feature film was very expensive and uh, I know a lot of people my my era who discovered silent film because their local library had a lot of eight millimeter copies my local library system had a 16 millimeter collection that was mostly educational films films the National mm -hmm. Film Board of Canada etc and a couple of silent films but they didn't have the film I was looking for and my folks remembered that Walter Kerr lived in our town and they had heard oh, somewhere wow. that he had a huge film collection. Now, uh, his wife, Jean Kerr is a, a playwright and humorist. And if you know of the classic film, please don't eat the daisies. It's based on a book that she wrote about her life living in this suburban town, uh, with her husband, the film critic, Walter Kerr. So David, I mean, it's not literal at all. So if you know that movie, with I think it's, is it Doris Day and David Niven? So basically, I wrote to Walter Kerr saying, I'm trying to find this film. I hear you have a film collection. Would you be willing to show it to me? And he called me a few days later. And so for the next, I don't know, 15, 20 years, uh, a few times a year, I would go to that Please Don't Eat the Daisies house and Walter Kerr would show me movies from his 16mm wow. collection. So um, I, I'm not saying this, you know, as a name drop, you pat myself on the back kind of thing, but it's one of these things where I feel like I'm supposed to be doing this, what I do with right. silent film, that um, it's something that just sort of lined itself up. You know, I literally grew up watching silent films at the home of the guy who wrote the book on silent film comedy <laughs> yeah. um you don't get a much clearer silent yeah film. and what's interesting is he was not you know he was he's such, such a brilliant writer but when i would ask him questions i would get short answers you know <laughs> very short answers but he was the guy who said yes and showed me whatever i wanted to see so that when i got to film school as a film production major and that's where i started playing for films i had already seen all this stuff um yeah. but so watching you know i i sometimes i've I, I feel like I want to 
uh, I mean, I have, I actually have Walter Kerr's print uh, of Modern Times as well as this other one from a relative that I have. And I have a weight and it's, you know, it's illegally on YouTube and it's on disc and, and there's something about me that doesn't want to lose that memory and that feeling uh, mm-hmm. from having seen it before, having shown it to my daughter when she was five, or having seen it as a, as a nine year old myself. Um, uh, uh, you know, I'll watch scenes from it every once in a while as part of my undercranking studies or my interest in in the score. But um, there, you know, it's 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 unusual. There's some films that I. I will revisit like like a few months ago I pulled out my Blu-ray of uh Jacques Tati's Playtime and set up the video projector cuz Tati films you have to see big and when you know watch that again but I, I there's something vis- because of maybe because of this visceral memory I have of yeah. seeing this film and the way it was sort of emblazoned on my my memory uh as a kid I don't want to lose any of that by watching it again on a television set that is so interesting. I'm trying to think if there's any movie like that for me. That's like a really cool answer. I haven't heard anyone describe it that way, but you're right. There is something to preserving a memory and not overwatching. Yeah. Film. Yeah. So it turns into something else. Yeah. 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 I mean, there's definitely something to going to watching it over and over because you discover, I was, I was listening before uh, we, we recorded today to your interview with, with Kelly kitchens about it's a wonderful life. And that mm-hmm. in, in re- reviewing that film, repeatedly there's so many more things you can discover and and that that is something that i've i've found in films you know with films that i accompany i always find new things to look at if it's a film like steamboat bill jr like you know there was one year where i played for it five or six times and then i wound up going to see a friend of mine play for it i thought oh steamboat bill jr again so there were other things that I, i i i looked for in the periphery but I have not, and I can't imagine I would ever accompany Modern Times. Uh, so it's not a film I have an opportunity to revisit over and over. And so, you know, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a, I don't know. There's, it's, it's an unusual case for me where I, I almost would rather not revisit it and, in, 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 in sort of uh, hold on to that, the, that memory, that uh, of, of what the film meant to me the the times that I have run it or watched it. Yeah. So what is your pitch uh, to somebody that hasn't seen it before? Like how do you frame, here's why you should see it and why you need to see it for the first time. It's hilarious. Uh, <laughs> it, 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 if you have any reservations about it, whether you're going to enjoy a silent film or not, this will, <laughs> blow them away you know the thing i i find in general uh with silent film especially with silent comedy film uh is that people who come to a show for the first and for their first time they always say this was way more fun than i thought it was going to be and if you have you know there's there is something to be said for the fact that with silent film exhibition that, Oh, you know, the comedies always get shown, but I, I find that those are the, an easier introduction to silent film. I think with the exception of the movie sunrise, uh, and maybe the crowd, uh, that the comedies are just an easier draw. Cause at least you're, you know, you're going to be laughing. 
Right. And you don't have to worry about understanding the language. And this is a hundred years ago. And who are these people and what are they doing? Um, but, and, and really, uh, with, in, with modern times, you're you're off and running right right from the first right from the first minute of the film. There's oh, yeah, this, there's no dull moments. <laughs> there's I mean, there's this driving energy with the music, and then bang, and there is Charlie working away uh, on on the on the on that assembly line. And um, if you if you can get yourself past the word silent and know oh, how long is the movie? Oh, 100 minutes. Oh boy, um, we've all got nothing but time right now. We can all use exactly. a good laugh. And this yeah. this one has a couple hundred in it, and and the other thing is uh, with with Chaplin films, uh, while there's a sentimentality to them or to some of them that's that uh, doesn't necessarily resonate with everybody, there's a sense of hopefulness in the midst of uh, being a cog in a machine, literally and figuratively. Uh, that is the message uh, uh, of this film that I think will. Uh, resonate and, and and you know that that like you said that that title card you know he he's found he's found a, a, a life partner uh we assume and uh for a change he's going down that road to, into who knows what uh uh with a sense of optimism and with with someone at his side and mm-hmm. uh into that sunrise uh, uh that's that's looming over over the horizon and there's something uh, refreshing and heartwarming about the way the film uh, winds up. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I, you know, I've talked on the show before about the fact that sometimes you'll talk to people that even love movies and they say things like, well, I don't really like old movies. And you're like, ugh, you know, that's always kind of a gut punch. If you watch several different types of film, you're like, how could you just skip all these movies and like never visit them what what you know yeah i know i'm always desperately trying to get people to watch older films but then you're right silent film is like an even bigger hurdle i think because even after you finally get somebody to watch a black and white movie woo you know um to get them to watch a silent film feels like a bigger hurdle but it's the word silent yeah yeah and it sounds kind of absolutely yeah it's like saying hey we're all going to go to a bar but it's in a library (laughs) right you know and it Um, just and 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 if you can just get past that 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 word and and i totally i hear this a a lot oh i spend all this money on a 50 inch screen why would i watch something with no color you know it's a waste of it need to be upscaled yeah first of all there's a lot of really awesome movies that they have upscaled dramatically that you will see a huge difference yeah but yeah yeah but it's, it's 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 weird because it's it's precisely because of what's missing that makes them work. And on yeah. the surface, it sounds off-putting, but like I've I've discovered from doing school shows, and the teachers are like, ah, I don't know, that's black and white, and they're not going to get it, and I don't know. And with as soon as the film starts, the kids are into it. Um, yeah, kids, I mean it's history too, isn't it? So it is it's kind of like you're getting that context of what it was like to live in that time. And yeah. There's just so much to, to glean and learn from it. Um, and, and also, I think this movie is, you know, like the title says, I think it's more modern than you would think. Um, I, I was certainly 
uh, really impressed with it. And I, I came away with like a different expectation than I thought I was going to have going in. Like oh, I definitely saw a different movie than I thought I was going to see. I was prepared and excited to see a Charlie Chaplin film, but I do think this one stands out. Like we've been talking about this whole time as just such a unique film. And I think one that is timeless. So I would say definitely check it out. Absolutely, absolutely. It's it's it's. Uh, you'll be glad you did, and yeah. and and it's uh, it's a great gateway into silent film. Definitely. Well, then, uh, how can people find you? <laughs> how can't people find me? <laughs> how can I'm not on. T- seek you out. <laughs> yeah, I'm not. I'm not on TikTok, and I can't. I can't imagine. <laughs> Um, it's like getting hit in the face with a bunch of flip books. Uh, I, uh, I'm, I'm, I have, a, my website is silentfilmmusic.com. Uh, I'm on Twitter. I'm on Instagram. I have a blog that's on silentfilmmusic.com and I have a podcast. If you search for the silent film music podcast with Ben Modell and where I, uh, talk about, uh, what it's like to prepare for and, and, and perform live scores and I have examples of the scores. So I'm eminently findable in all sorts of, in all sorts of ways, uh, uh, uh online. And, uh, and if you right now, uh, if you can't get to a show and you can't, uh, to come see me play anywhere, you can, uh, join me in my living room and my friend Steve master from his on Sunday afternoons on the silent comedy watch party. And it's, and because, you know, uh, you're not in a theater with other people, but be, if you can att- uh, attend the show while it's happening live, just knowing that there are, are another few hundred other people around the planet right. watching with you, it, it's the closest thing. And, and because it is me playing, um, it's the closest thing. And there's a few other uh, groups who are doing these things. It is the closest thing you'll get to attending a silent film show until the lights come back on. And if you want to, you know, like I said, um, get get to interact with me and 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 hear me pr- perform and there's lots of dvds uh that i've released on the undercrank productions label stuff you've never heard of and there's a lot of stuff that i've scored uh for groups like uh um, labels like kino lorber uh, that that you can find uh either through streaming or or you can you know do buy the physical media yeah Awesome. Well, you know, this has been such a treat. It's been so informative and I loved hearing, you know, thank you for introducing this film to me. Oh, you're very welcome. I really enjoyed the discussion. So, you know, I, I want to have you back sometime. If you could pick another silent film or something we could talk about, uh, I'd definitely love oh, to have you back. Oh, I'm sure <laughs> there are so many <laughs> others, but we'll, we'll, we'll pick something by Buster Keaton or something. But Lisa, I'm, I'm so Yay. glad you invited me onto the show and I'm so glad to uh, connect with not only you, but uh, anyone listening uh, to help uh, spread the good word about silent film. Yeah, and it's, absolutely. it's, it's not like, it's not like taking medicine folks. It's like, <laughs> it's like jello. Go it's just dive in. Yeah. Just dive in. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, thank you so much. Yeah. You're welcome. Welcome.